Once again, a very blessed Advent to all of you. What a joy it is to be back in this season again. As we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us bow for a word prayer. Oh God, you come to us again and again and again in Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. As we open once again this morning your holy word, we pray that he would be made manifest once again, that these words which point to him might come alive, sharper than a double-edged sword. So speak to us, O Lord, send your spirit that we might hear, and in our hearing give us the courage to obey. All these prayers we make in his holy name. Amen. The Old Testament lesson today is Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. The prophet says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no eye has perceived, no ear has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in their ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. And the New Testament lesson is Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope... We were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One afternoon during my second year of seminary in Pittsburgh, I got a call from my friend Rick, who was also in his second year of seminary at Princeton. He was struggling with Hebrew, and so he would often call me as he worked his way through his afternoon homework in a deep frustration. So I figured when I saw his name pop up on my phone, he must be calling me to complain about a trick question on his Hebrew quiz or something like that. But you know how sometimes you get a call and you can tell from the first word that, that's uttered that something is terribly wrong? You kind of brace yourself for the news of uh, what's happened. That's what happened to me that day as Rick called to tell me he had cancer and wasn't expected to live another year. I drove from Pittsburgh to New Jersey that weekend, a long, snowy, horrible drive that left me with plenty of time to ponder what had happened. Rick was nearly 60 years old and was a member of the church where I'd grown up in Denver. And as long as I'd known him, he had had this dream of going to seminary. And he'd worked two jobs trying to save up until he could finally go. He'd never married and had a difficult relationship with his parents, and so loneliness was always a struggle for him. When I arrived at the hospital in Princeton, I could feel the tension between Rick and his parents when I weaseled my way into that mix in the hospital room. Rick had put on a tough face and was acting like everything was fine. His mother was there and in lecture mode, telling Rick that he didn't seem to have any hope at all. He needed to be more optimistic. He needed more of a fighting spirit. He shouldn't be so hopeless about it. He seemed so resigned to his fate, but he needed to fight this, his mother insisted. Rick, for his part, lay there wordlessly glaring off into the distance. And when Rick's parents finally left, a switch flipped and Rick suddenly began to sob heavily. And after a pause, he said, Brian, I don't want to fight this. I've been fighting and fighting my whole life. My mother says I don't have any hope. But if I only have a few months left to live, I don't want to spend them fighting, pretending to feel something I don't. What I want is to find peace. What do you think it means to have hope? Every year on the first Sunday of Advent, we're reminded that it's a good Christian thing to do, to have hope. And it is, but what does it really mean to have hope? Not just hope in the day-to-day things, not just rosy colored glasses or the warm, fuzzy anticipation we get waiting for the joys of Christmas. What does it mean to have hope when you're at the end of your rope, when the bottom drops out from under you, when you're faced with life's greatest challenges? Sometimes I think we associate hope with a certain kind of emotion or a certain kind of feeling, right? Maybe hope is a kind of lightness of being, one that anticipates the future with assurance and confidence. Maybe hope is the absence of anxiety or dread, a kind of sunny disposition that sees the glass half full and always looks on the bright side of life. Maybe hope is a sort of pleasant cheerfulness that whistles while it works, is thankful for blessings, and sheds far more tears of joy than tears of sorrow. But... It seems like thinking of hope 
only in terms of emotions is too limited a definition of this potent concept. Because after all, our emotions vary a lot, don't they? They're dependent on all sorts of different things. Some of us just have more melancholic personalities than others of us, and I'd hate to think that an Enneagram number or a Myers-Briggs letter would determine whether or not I have the capacity to hope. And our emotions vary throughout the course of a year, right? I'd hate to think that a cloudy stretch of weather or an anniversary of a loss or the toll of the pandemic could limit my ability to have hope. Surely hope is something more than just feeling happy. The word happiness, after all, comes from the Old Norse terms meaning luck or chance. Think of the prefix hap in the word happenstance. Feelings can be fleeting, right? Random, lucky, too wrapped up in the suddenness of change that swirls around us. Of course, this is not to knock the benefits of being positive and optimistic. Who doesn't love to be around people who refuse to complain, right? We all love those people who have a knack for making lemonade out of lemons. But there's more to hope than just that. Because hope abides deeper within us than our fleeting emotions. It doesn't waver with the sudden changes of circumstance. Because hope rests in the assurance that God alone knows what the future holds. Hope that is seen is not hope, Paul writes. For who hopes for what they already see? And he goes on to say that if we hope for what we don't yet see, then we wait for it patiently. So hope must have a forward-looking orientation then. It must have something to do with eager waiting and expectation. That's why we kick off the season of Advent with hope every year. Hope is assured that God will be working in the future no matter what is to come. For hope to be all that Paul describes it to be, it must give us the courage to step into the future expecting to see God at work. Now, although hope is oriented toward an unknown and unseen future, we should also note that hope must also be rooted in reality. I think we sometimes confuse hope with wishing for things, but in fact, the two are opposite. Wishing for things is rooted in magical thinking, but hope confronts the realities of today with the courage to face tomorrow. True hope remains when we take an honest look at our world around us as it stands and still have the courage to step into the future expecting to see God at work. In college, I studied abroad in Guatemala and took hours of Spanish classes every day. And one of the exercises we often had to do was to translate songs from Spanish into English. It was a pretty good time. One song I translated describes a woman who bids farewell to her lover one day as he pushes off from the wharf for a journey at sea. And he swears that he'll return to her, and she swears she'll be right there waiting for him until he returns. Well, the days go by and the seasons change, and each day she stands there on the wharf waiting for him, wearing the same dress she was wearing the day he departed so that when he returns there'd be no way that he could mistake her. The song says that her legs eventually planted roots in the sea, and even though the crabs bit at her feet, nothing could make her turn her back on the sea. Eventually the townspeople's gossip increases and the authorities come to take her away, but they can't do it. 
nothing would take her away from the sea. Now, this poor woman in the song may have had hope when her lover first departed, but as time went on, it became evident that her hope was not rooted in reality, right? It was delusional. Eventually, she needed to face reality, to turn her back at the, to the sea and courageously step into the future. But the tragedy of the song was she was unable to do that. She was stuck in magical thinking, wishing for something that was never going to happen. No, you see, hope sustains us not instead of reality, but in spite of reality. Hope empowers us to step into tomorrow with full awareness of the severity of the diagnosis, full awareness of our financial challenges, full awareness that our relationship is not healthy. Hope gives us courage to navigate the world as it is, knowing that even in its brokenness, God is on the move, and God never sits still. So hope doesn't ignore reality, but neither does it succumb to reality. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed, right? And we don't know how we're going to face tomorrow. But it's then that hope really kicks in. It's then that hope won't let us quit. That hope persuades us to get out of bed and give today a try. Hope becomes for us a sort of gritty determination to keep going. Every year at Advent, we declare that God is doing a new thing again this year as we anticipate the coming of Christ. Scripture is full of the promise that as the years come and go, God is always working. And if God is always doing a new thing, so should we. Expectation gets us out of our seats. Are you sensing God's nudge to try something new this Advent season? Hope can give us the courage to seek the help we need to mend a broken relationship, to apologize when we're wrong. Ultimately, hope gives us the courage to be vulnerable, even the courage to push through failure. Hope is defiant and stubborn. It compels us to persevere when things go wrong. Hope is gritty. It emboldens us to be persistent in the work that God has called us to do. My friend Calvin's is full of this kind of hope. Calvin's lives in Kenya, in a rural area near Lake Victoria, and his community has long been hit hard by the HIV epidemic, which has led to countless children who live around him being orphaned. A few years ago, he took many of them into his family's home, not sure how he would provide for their needs. At first, he walked from village to village selling secondhand clothing, but that didn't generate enough income to buy all the food he needed for those growing children. So he went home and planted a large garden of his own to grow his own food. But the droughts and irregular weather in the region meant that food was only available sporadically. So he raised money to buy a big 300-gallon tub to store rainwater in. And now he has a steady source of water for his garden. Throughout this pandemic, he's often had to travel for hours to find the food supplies he needs. I've often marveled at Calvin's relentless endurance. He simply does what needs to be done, no matter what it takes. And so in preparation for the sermon, I asked him what hope meant to him. I wanted to know because I had seen him try and come up short and try again until he eventually found the solution to the problems he faced. And I figured that surely his hope must reside deeper than his emotions. And in response to my inquiry, Calvin's wrote this. 
He said, as a Christian, I've been brought up learning about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But also, fundamentally, I've learned to be patient and hopeful, even when there is nothing to look forward to. Doing my part and trusting God will do the rest, hoping that tomorrow will be better than today, even if tomorrow turns out to be exactly the same as today. Most importantly, I turn to God in prayer when I feel like I've reached a brick wall, and I know that God will help us all through seemingly tough situations. You see, hope gives us that kind of courage. Hope empowers us to take risks and try something new, even when, in Calvin's words, there is nothing to look forward to. That must be what it means to hope for the things we do not yet see, and to trust that What we don't yet see will come into focus as God unfolds the future in surprising ways. So in the end, what might we say about hope? Well, sometimes we feel hope and sometimes we don't. But perhaps hope can be found deep within each of us, whether we feel it in any particular moment or not. Perhaps hope is a deep-seated assurance, a courageous impulse to keep going, a a tether that ties us to Christ through thick and thin. That's the hope I observed in my friend Rick during the final six months of his life. He moved back to Denver, and I was able to see him a couple more times before he died. And the hope that he had within him didn't manifest itself in a furious battle against his brain tumor the way his mother had demanded. Instead, his hope led him to use the time he had left to defiantly find the peace and rest that his soul had been longing for, right in the midst of the pain and fear that threatened him. And in the end, he was able to die on his own terms, having found his peace. What are you hoping for this Advent season? Maybe you're feeling hopeful, and maybe you're not, but either way, my prayer for you this morning is that you will consider the hope that is within you, that you will locate it and find it. Like any other good thing, hope is ultimately a gift from God, and so as we embark on this Advent season together, hope is coming to us again in the vulnerable Christ child, in his courageous mother, and the wandering, wondering witnesses who flock to the stable in Bethlehem to see this new thing that God has done. So may you find the hope that is within you this Advent season, and may it sustain you for the work that God is continuing to do in your life. Alleluia, and thanks be to God. Amen.